Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman Deep Dive, the politics podcast that explores the ideas behind the news. A spectre is haunting Europe. The spectre of centrism. À l'issue d'une longue confrontation démocratique, vous avez choisi de m'accorder votre confiance. In France, a rabble-rousing investment banker and classically trained pianist has been elected president. In Germany, polling indicates that in September, voters will turn to a ragtag band of outsiders known as the Christian Democratic Union, led by a brash maverick called Angela Merkel. In Britain, voters seem set to reject the cool technocratic competence of Jeremy Corbyn in favour of that rule-breaking firebrand, Theresa May. As the rising tide of anti-anti-establishment politics rolls across the continent, we ask, what's next? I'm Ian Leslie, and as usual, I'm here with Stuart Wood. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Ian. Lovely to be with you again. Lovely to be with you. I, I, um, Thank you very much. I was going to say I saw you on TV last night, but that would be a lie. But you, you were on TV, and uh, you weren't talking about politics. You were playing the guitar, is that right? I was. I was a very, a very attractive uh, lead guitarist in a band. Finally, um, a rock star after all these years. Exactly, exactly. Messing around Frustration. in Frustration. I thought politics is basically a mugs game, and I decided to move into music at the age of 49. Very, very wise. Are there any examples of politicians that have become rock stars or rock stars that have become... Yes, Peter Garrett, Australian lead singer of Midnight Oil, became an MP. And of course, Theresa May was a member of Susie and the Banshees for, well, for a long time. <laughs> Little known facts uh, from the deep dive. That's what you come to us for. Okay, so before we begin in earnest, I want to make a plea for your vote, dear listeners. If you have a few seconds, please open iTunes and rate us and leave a review. It really makes a difference uh, because it sends more traffic our way. As you may have noticed, the deep dive is no longer dropping onto your phone via the main New Statesman feed, but it's out there fending for itself in the podcast jungle. So your support is crucial. Okay, so this week we'll be looking at the M&M axis, Macron and Merkel. Emmanuel Macron came from nowhere to win the French presidency in what seemed like about five minutes. It's an absolutely amazing achievement. Now comes the hard part. As the curtains drew shut at the Elysee after the inauguration and the last clanking knights left the building, you can imagine Macron turning to his advisers and asking, like Robert Redford at the end of The Candidate, what do we do now? So what is he going to do now? What does Macron have to accomplish in the next 
three months, and the next year, the next six years to be successful. Will his victory be remembered as the moment France started to remake itself for the 21st century, or merely as a prelude to Marine Le Pen's first term? What turns on the relationship between Macron and Merkel? How will the M&M axis change the direction of the EU, and what does that mean for Brexit? Stuart, what have you made of Macron's first week? A new dawn for Europe, is it not? It, it may be. Um, I mean, his first challenge is to get a majority for a party that currently has no representatives in the Assembly. Um, and he's got to do that in the next few weeks from a standing right. start. And that is no mean task. So his, his first act was to appoint someone to reach across to the conservative uh, the Conservatives on the right appoint a PM to, to try and split them, which is a very smart move. So the PM comes from... The... Yeah, the President appoints the PM, uh, as I'm sure our guests will explain in more detail than I can. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the President and PM then have to work together, essentially, and, and whether or not you get anything done depends on whether the President can mobilise the Prime Minister and the majority in the Assembly. Um, but what's interesting about Macron is, I mean, he's... In France, they've elected a 39-year-old banker to be the anti-establishment candidate. And it's an extraordinary gamble in a way. How can he maintain the anti-establishment credentials when he's a banker? And his agenda, to the extent he has an agenda, is to liberalise France, to, to move. I mean, France has never really had an economic liberal project like we had under Thatcher or America's had under various presidents. The question is, if he starts doing that, can he really sustain the, the sense that he's an anti-establishment figure uh, on behalf of the people against the elite? And then there's a bigger question about his relationship with Merkel and whether this is the kickstart for a different kind of European project. I mean, he, his first visit was to Berlin to see Merkel. That axis is very important. We should be careful how we use the word axis, I suppose. It's very important axis inside the European Union. But can he get the Germans to buy into restoring growth and the change of policies that that will require? Can, he, can there be a vision of Europe that Merkel and Macron challenge, which is actually not just about the economy, but a bigger, maybe a defence identity or something about well, on the, Europe on the world stage? You know, is Merkel going to be the brown to Macron's Blair in a kind of new alliance, or is that just pie in the sky? Will, will Merkel get... What a will, terrifying thought. Exactly. I knew, I knew you'd hate that one. <laughs> um, or will Macron get bogged down in, in domestic fights over you know, labour market reform and all the things presidents often get stuck into? It is going, it's not going to be boring. I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating challenge to, to, to watch him uh, try and do this. And it's, and it's quite a finely balanced uh, situation. It's time to introduce today's guest, Anand Menon. Anand is the director of the think tank UK in a Changing Europe, based at King's College in London. He's an advisor to the House of Lords EU Committee and a contributor to the Financial Times, London Review of Books and others. In short, there's nobody better qualified to discuss today's questions, and we're delighted to have Anand with us today. Hello, Anand. Hiya. Nice to see you. I'm very pleased that Stuart didn't interject when you said that with a negative <laughs> comment. I'll put that at the end. <laughs> I should I should, I should, should let you know that Anand and Stuart are, are old friends, um, so uh, there may be some, uh, some insults flying back and forth across the microphones today. <laughs> Anand, just looking... Um, uh, I, I've got a quick question for you, because I know Stuart's going to ask a question as well. Um, at what point did Macron first make an impression on you as a significant player? Well, he was always a figure worth watching, even when he was a minister under Hollande, because he was so young, he gives off that sense of energy. Uh, and I think anyone who watched French politics would say, here's one to watch. I don't think anyone realised that you needed to watch him quite so closely for quite such a meteoric rise, but I think everyone had him down as a star of the future. 
And when you look at Macron, do you see a radical president in the making? I mean, I was at Hollande's party when he won five years ago with Emma Reynolds. We were throwing balloons off the balcony. And that was probably the most radical day of his entire presidency. It was all downhill from there. Do you think Macron's got it in him to be a radical president? Well, firstly, just to be competitive, I'll trump you. I went to Paris in 1981 <laughs> to celebrate, so I know bitterness from a long time back. All right, I was there with de Gaulle in 45, <laughs> all right? So you... But... Uh... I have to say, and this is partly a temperamental thing, I am a profoundly negative human being, that Macron worries me, and he worries me profoundly in the sense that he's going to find it very hard to actually do anything. And the last thing in the world that France needs now is five years of stasis. Because he's promised so much, the situation of the bits of France that voted Le Pen are dire. And unless he can kickstart this economy, and unless he can manage to govern, then I think in five years' time, we're going to have a very, very nasty election. There's a lot of talk coming out of the Le Pen camp that they were by that 2022 was their real shot. Is, is that just post defeat rationalisation, or do you think there is a sense that the the Front National have another wave in them? No, no, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, I did a, a, a radio program a few weeks ago about the Front National, and we went and talked to a lot of their key people, and in private they all said 2022 is our target. This is just a stepping stone, and particularly what we aim to do this time round is take another big step forward in our project of detoxification. We want to normalise the National Front with a view to being serious contenders in 2022. The big question about the National Front is whether they can hold it together because it's a party that's riven between the old guard who hate Marine Le Pen because they see her as a traitor and the niece in the South who embodies a whole different ideology to her auntie who was focused on the North. And when, and when we talk about Macron's agenda, we, we know he wants to cut business taxes, he wants to liberalise labour rules a bit, mm-hmm. like every president seems to want to do. Um, what else is there, though, in the Macron agenda? What, what's he about? Well, Macron classifies himself as radical centre, which is a phrase I've never really understood. But what he aims to be is neither left nor right. So, yes, he wants to liberalise, but at the same time, he wants to help the poor. So he's taken bits of the centre-right and the centre-left manifestos. And what will be interesting, you were talking about the problems he has in the National Assembly. He will put together a coalition of people from left and right to form a party. He might get a majority. If he doesn't, then we've got trouble already. But then he's got to get those people to vote for the same things. And I think we saw even under Hollande. Hollande's problem was with a majority in the National Assembly, his party was divided. And the fear is that Macron will find himself in the same position. Every time he he tries to do something that looks vaguely centre-left, the centre-right within his own party say, hang on a sec, that wasn't what we were promised, and vice versa. So what would it take for him to succeed, to overcome that sort of the inherent inertia of the system? For instance, you know, would it be his personal popularity? Is it possible that he'll be so popular and so trusted that uh, the parliament will will be under his sway when it comes to these kind of... Um, or, or, or does it mean that he has to build specific kind of alliances with certain parts of... I think he has to build certain alliances both in Parliament and outside. I mean, the, the, the takeaway from me from Barack Obama is that charm only gets you so far in politics. You have to do yeah. the dirty work of governing. And I think Macron's position is very, very similar. He does inspire hope in a large section of the French population, but he needs to do, get down to brass tacks. He needs to build a coalition in Parliament. And then he needs to do something that no French president has done in the last 20 years, which is take on the vested interests, take on the unions, and bring about reform in the French labour market. And that is always messy. And so at least for two or three years, you can can expect to see the sheep and cows in the streets, the air traffic controllers going on strike. Because France's problem is that the world is great if you've got a job, but the world is dreadful if you don't. And you have to open up that labour market to let the 20% of the French who are unemployed into it. And that's going to impose costs on those already doing quite well. 
One of the things most striking about Macron's campaign was that he was incredibly unapologetic about being pro-European, like waving European flags at rallies and all the supporters were as well. It's quite a risky thing to do in a country that's got the kind of problems you're talking about. Um, what, what does he, what, what, what infuses him about Europe? Is it a different kind of Europe to the one we have or is it a sort of protect what we've got, support the project kind of pro-Europeanism? Well, I say two things. I think firstly, he's a very traditional French Europhile. He sees Europe as France's destiny, to use the language that successive presidents have used. And he sees it as the only way forward, both for his country and for the continent as a whole. So he doesn't question the European Union. The second thing, and I would cynically say this is one of the reasons why he played Europe up as much as he did, was that the National Front really started a struggle over Europe towards the end of the campaign. So Marine Le Pen started to realise about a month out that this policy of leaving the euro would cause enormous damage because it's, there's no easy way to extricate yourself from a single currency. So if you remember in the last fatal debate, she came up with that rather odd scheme of having a parallel franc along with the euro. And of course, he mercilessly took her apart. So actually, both for reasons of genuine commitment to Europe and for reasons of political tactics, it suited him to play the Europe card, I think. What, what's your personal impression of him? I mean, do you really rate him as a politician or do you think he's a somebody who has is reasonably good but has had a lot of luck? I mean, what, what's your, what's your just sort of gut feel about Macron? I think he's going to be a very inspiring head of state because he clearly has that X factor that allows him to generate hope among people, inspire people. You hear reports even of the speeches he gives to his own team behind closed doors as being massively inspiring. Whether or not he's a good politician, we're going to have to wait and see because managing France is about backroom deals as much as it is about standing on a stage and inspiring thousands. Well, someone who's also very inspiring behind closed doors, I can, I can recognise that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Legendary. That's not a report I've heard, but anyway. <laughs> That's when the doors get opened that I'm in trouble. Um, I want to look at his, his relationship with Germany and, and what it means for Europe. I mean, the traditional tension between France and Germany, and let's face it, the Franco-German alliance has been in a bit of trouble for a few mm -hmm. years now. But the traditional tension is that the Germans are very economically orthodox and the French want growth. I mean, you could say Europe desperately needs growth. It's become Japan for the last mm -hmm. 10 years. And so in that sense, I'm on Macron's side against the Germans. But is there any chance that he'll persuade Merkel to kickstart the economy in a way that is very un-German? Or is that pie in the sky? All the signs are that the answer is no. Uh, now, it's very hard to know at the moment because, of course, Merkel's in campaigning mode. And the last thing you do in Germany in campaigning mode is say, we're going to spend a load of money on the Eurozone. But people like Schäuble have been perfectly explicit about this. The model we have adopted so far is the model we're going to keep, we're going to stick with because it's working. The fact is it's only working for Germany and not really for anyone else, but that doesn't seem to concern them. So he'll struggle with that. But mood matters. If he and Merkel can give the appearance of getting on, give the appearance of having a good partnership, even that will help in terms of moving the European Union forward. Because it, the, 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 French, what, the beauty of the Franco-German relationship in the EU isn't how much they agree, it's how much they disagree. They have always been different on economic issues. And the point is, if France and Germany can say, look, despite our differences, we want to work together, that brings everyone else along. So... I think you're right. It is, it is crucial that they fix the Eurozone, but I've got no great hopes that they're going to come to a compromise. But even above and beyond that, I think if they manage to create a firm friendship and a partnership, that in itself will do some good. And you've done quite a lot of, I know you've, you've written quite a lot in the past about France and defence and, and uh, security issues. Is there a chance that under Macron, we're going to have more of a European 
military security identity, that there'll be a stronger integration of armed forces, the EU acting more, you know, in a more united way on the international stage, outside of economic issues? Well, I think the crucial variable there isn't Macron, it's Trump. And I think the fact of having Trump is going to push the Europeans closer together. So if you listen to the Germans now, they're talking about defence in a way they haven't in a long, long time. So they will do more. I don't think they'll integrate their defence structures more because, of course, no country wants to give over control of its armed forces. But I think already you see moves towards collaborating more in buying weaponry, for instance, and cutting costs and making Europe more efficient when it comes to the military. I think that will continue, but it will be very, very incremental. So Trump is just increasing the spirit of collaboration amongst nations all over the world. I mean, it's a really beautiful thing to see. Um, we're, increasing we're all, the spirit oh, yeah. of fear yes, <laughs> yeah, right. in countries around the world. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk about Britain and, and Brexit for a minute. What does what, what Macron's uh, ascendance and, and, and the Macron-Merkel relationship, if it is as good as it seems as it, as, as it going to be, um, what does that imply for for the Brexit process? Well, if you believe, as I do, that Macron is genuinely committed to the European Union, wants to see it prosper, wants to see it flourish, that has implications for us because it means ultimately the future of the European Union is more important to him than any short-term stitch-up he can come to with us. He And so his priority is to make sure that the rules of the game are respected. And of course, thinking to 2022, his other priority is to make sure that it's absolutely clear to all French voters that non-membership isn't as appealing as membership. So... In both those respects, he will stick to the guidelines the European Union has produced and he will not be there arguing for special favours for us. Is he after our companies? I mean, he, he did a couple of pitches for entrepreneurs to, to, from America or Britain and elsewhere to come to Paris. Do you think that's going to be a bigger and bigger theme for him? Well, he did a pitch here in London in February when he came here yeah. and he said quite explicitly... If I am your president, what I will do is get all these bankers, all these academics who are French, who are based in London, to come home. So, yeah, he will make a pitch. I've got a question, which is a bit of a, a kind I'd of... I quite like to live in Paris, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not awful. Um, uh, which is a sort of, uh, almost like a meta question on, on this whole debate. And, and it might might be going a, a little bit too, too deep into kind of the, the psychodrama of national identity. But... I've always wondered about this, and you, you can both address this because you're both uh, uh, hi- historians of one sort or another. Um, what is it about the difference in the way France thinks about its national identity to the way Britain does? So when you say, you know, there's a very strong strain in, in French thinking, which is yeah, our destiny is Europe. Um, I always think, well, in Britain, there's a strong strain of thinking, well, we are our own country. Uh, we don't want to be part of a, a kind of a, a separate national. Right? So, and it, you know, whether, whatever way the Brexit vote gone, you would have known that there's a very strong kind of sense of that in Britain. It doesn't seem to me that France or the French people are any less pa- patriotic than, mm-hmm. than, uh, than Britain, right? So I've never quite understood w- how they square that emotionally, kind of psychologically with, with, this, with this feeling that we want to be part of this bigger entity. I mean, you see what I'm going to get? For me, the most interesting thing over the last 10, 15 years, if you compare France and the UK, is I think, and I look forward to the tweets about this, uh, the French have got their head round relative decline better than we have. That is to say, you're absolutely right. The (laughs) French are every bit as proud of their country. The French are every bit as patriotic. Absolutely. But it, it is now part of mainstream French discourse that we can't do this by ourselves. That has become accepted. 
I don't think I've ever heard a leading politician in Britain say that, and if they did, they wouldn't have a very long career at the moment. So I think that's the key, is that the French now see Europe as a way of making up for the loss of power that the country has suffered. Uh, and, and that explains a lot in terms of our different attitudes. I mean, isn't it also partly that after the Second World War, the French gave up the traditional route of punishing the Germans after a catastrophic uh, war and decided to try and import the best of German economic discipline into their own country. So they kind of, they took a gamble on economic integration, didn't they, as a way of, of strengthening their own country. And, and the nationalism expressed itself in other things to our country, expresses itself in the language Sarkozy told Gordon Brown when I worked for him that when he arrived in power, he asked someone like McKinsey's to work out what it would take to make French the lingua franca of uh, the European Union. They came back after six months and said it's too late. English is one. But language, culture, those are the things that they get nationalistic about, right? Much more than, than we do. Yeah, very much so. But what I would say, I don't want this to turn into a sort of nerd fest, but what I would say is... <laughs> when it, it, it it's already too late. Is, yeah. <laughs> when... When the French first thought of European integration, they thought of it precisely as a way of screwing Germany. I mean, the first plans for a coal and steel community mm. were essentially about France taking over the coal and steel so the Germans couldn't have it. And it was the Americans who said to the French, actually, you can't do that. Interesting. This either needs to be collaborative or you can't do it at all. I mean, Monet was a mercantilist and he saw German coal and steel as a way to rebuild mm. France. Interesting. But yeah, they've come to see this differently now. They have a different mindset. Even at the level of symbols, I mean, you talked about Macron and playing the European anthem uh, after his election. But one of the big differences between the French and us is when any French president gives a press conference, he's got two flags behind him. Every single time without fail, there's a European flag and there's a French flag. And the EU is in French political DNA in a way we couldn't even imagine in this country, I think. Yeah. And there isn't the hostility to Brussels that we have in our country, is there, in the same way? Or is there still? Oh, absolutely. There's there a hostility, hostility towards Brussels, and there's a lot of hostility towards specific measures. So the posted workers directive is absolutely hated in France. It was the French before us who were yeah. moaning about the Polish plumbers. So the French have got a very, very long list of complaints about Brussels, not least the austerity associated with the euro. But nevertheless, they see their future as being part of it in a way that we never have. Really interesting. Um, and Anne, that was absolutely fascinating. Brilliant, really good. Thank you very much. And uh, Four out of ten I give you for that, Anne. <laughs> very, very nice to be sat next to a rock star. <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We finish these podcasts, as I'm sure you all know, being loyal listeners, with a rant or rave. This week, it's Ian's turn to rant about something that the campaign thrown up. Yeah, I, I just want to have a rant about um, a, a point of view um, which is popular on the Labour left, which I'm seeing a lot of at the moment, and it's really getting my goat, which is, look, um, it looks like we're about to lose this election pretty disastrously, guys, but... Isn't this a wonderful manifesto? You know, just hang on. Just put the electorate aside for one minute, all the voters and all that stuff. Yeah, we'll try and win votes. We may not get them, whatever. Just look at these policies. Aren't they wonderful? Look at my lovely, lovely manifesto. This is utterly ridiculous, right? The whole point of a manifesto is to get people to to, to, to vote for you so you can put those policies in, into action, right? If your policies are not popular, and and obviously, the, you know, the question of the leadership comes up inevitably here, um, then uh, that is a problem if you pol- if you think your policies are are good and the voters are about to reject them decisively that should cause you increased pain it should not be an opportunity for self congratulation which is what it seems to me like uh, the sort of the, the denial the sort of dis- self uh, deception involved in saying uh, yeah okay you know obviously there's some problems around messaging and media and so on but these po- these policies are great and they're really popular they poll well well, look, first of all, uh, the Labour left, I thought, didn't believe in focus grouping everything and what the polls say about absolutely everything, right? And it's, it's actually not a way to, to, to form good policy to see what polls were. Um, but also, you have to look at the mix. You know, if you poll uh, these policies individually and say, wouldn't it be great if we spent a lot, a lot more money on the National Health Service? Wouldn't it be great if we nationalised rail? What do you think? People will say, yeah, 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 sure, that sounds good. That sounds good. And by the way, uh, you won't have to pay for any of this because we're going to tax those guys over there then how could you not answer you know in a poll in, a, in an opinion poll sure, yeah that sounds good to me but of course when you put that all together in a mix and you say this party is proposing that we spend loads of money and everything and nobody's going to pay for it the voters go don't be ridiculous you know i don't trust you um and they're right to have you finished your rant now? Are the Labour left there? Ian? I feel a lot better now. Thank you. I mean, there's a curious mirror image going on, right? Because on the Tory side, the Tories smuggle out their manifesto, which they really don't want to run on. They want the manifesto to be sort of in a bargain basement at 5p a copy very quickly. They have no... In- and they're putting some tough things in their manifesto, to be fair to them. But they don't want people to vote on the back of them. So in, 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 in both main parties, you've got manifestos that are at odds with the leadership's character and the characteristics of... Of the, main, of the main front runners in the party. But I would defend the Labour left in, 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 with one question here. What would you do if you had Jeremy Corbyn as your leader? Surely you put all your eggs in the manifesto basket. That's, that's, the way to, that's the way to try and attract voters. And as you say, the manifesto does look like it's popular. 
It may not be the thing that wins the election, yeah, but, but I you mean, can't have a go at them for having a manifesto. That if you're rings about bells to the lose electorate. the election, you, you, you know, you're about to lose the election. And and if you say, you know, if your framing for the election going in is just never mind the leader, look at these policies, look at these policies, look at these policies, and then you get absolutely routed um, in the election, then what are the chances of those policies ever making it into any manifesto ever again? Talking of routing, there is this idea knocking around that if Labour gets the same share of the vote as 2015, that it'll be okay. Um, well, as someone who worked for Ed Miliband, Ed Miliband resigned within four hours of getting that share of the vote. And secondly, uh, we are now basically back in, really interestingly, in a two-party world with some venom in a way that people a few years ago didn't think possible. Getting that share of the vote in a two-party world is quite a different proposition to getting it in a four-five Yeah, five and the share world. of the vote thing, I mean, yeah, look, you're going to pile up votes in Islington. You know, congratulations on, on that. But, but you, you are just losing, you know, huge Labour strongholds uh, across the country. Ian would rant against the Labour left every week if you had a chance, but oh, we're only giving him one shot. So Thanks unfair, for that, Ian. Very fair, fair and balanced, like Fox News. Thanks, Ian. See you next week on The Deep Dive. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.